If you're enjoying this podcast and it's helping your writing, then come study with me and my faculty. You can attend in New York City, live, online, or one-on-one as part of our ProTrack mentorship program, which pairs you with a professional writer. Hi, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay podcast. On this podcast, rather than reviewing films, two thumbs up, two thumbs down, loved it or hated it, we look at them in terms of what we can learn from them as screenwriters. We look at good movies and bad movies, movies that we loved and movies that we hated. So I'm here with Linus Roche, who is an actor that you guys probably recognize from Vikings and a thousand other fabulous shows and films. Linus was just in Mandy with Nicolas Cage. So we're going to be talking about that movie. And Linus is also a writer in his own right. So we're going to be talking a little bit about his projects and what it's like to walk the line between being an actor and a writer Mm. and how those processes are similar and different. So maybe you could just start by talking a little bit about how did you, after a whole career in acting, how did you come to writing? I think I've always had an idea or an ambition to write at some point. It was like, even as a child, it was the idea of being able to write your own movie. Everybody wants to write deep down, I think. I've always had a great appreciation for writers. I have a theatre background, did all the classical work of Shakespeare. So I've always had a great love of writers and what they do, and I'm slightly in awe of them. And I never felt that I would really be able to write. You know, I could get a script and see what I didn't like about it and try and change dialogue and things, but I could never really craft anything. But eventually, I think at a certain point as an actor, you do realize that you are just a piece in a big, big puzzle. I reached that point where it's like, I would like to be more creative. I would like to bring more of the stories I want to tell to life. And as you know, my wife and I, Roz, who I co-write with. We had a passion project that we wanted to turn into a screenplay. And I knew there's no way you can just sit down and write the screenplay without some help. (laughs) So we we looked around and, you know, there's all the usual suspects out there. And I think Roz came to see you doing a a one-off little seminar. And then we did write your screenplay one and two and three and then pro track and you know just to say jake there's been an invaluable two years that we spent doing that with you because for someone who's read i don't know how many thousands of scripts i must have read and i can immediately tell you what's a good one and what's a bad one but i can't tell you how to make a bad one good or why something necessarily is that good it's like taking the back off a swiss watch and understanding how it all actually works and it was the most humbling two years of work i think i've ever engaged in In fact, if I'd known it was going to be that difficult, I might not have done it. But I'm so grateful that we went on the journey and have learned something of the craft. It's a craft you never stop learning. Yeah, well, a lot like acting. Just like acting. Movies get made when they have got great actors in them. And I think probably one of the things that's top of mind for all of our writers is if you want a Linus Roche in your movie, Mm. what do you look for when you are looking at a role? (laughs) Well, it might be different things at different times, but ultimately you're looking for a journey. You are actually looking for a journey of transformation that is believable. You want to actually feel like as you read, you are being carried through that journey. In a sense, what happens, I think, when you read a good screenplay is you do see the movie. And for an actor, it's almost like what I call NAR, no acting required. 
because it's actually been done for you. Of course, you've got to show up and you'll bring nuance to it. But when something's really well written, your job is almost to be a conduit and get out of the way. Your wants are there. You're like, oh, I don't have to make stuff work. It yeah. works and I can deliver it. It gives it. you the yeah. opportunity to play against the line or yeah. to find yeah. a moment of nuance that wasn't there before because you're not That's right. building that primary That's structure. Right. Right. You're playing within it. I think that word you just used, you know, that's been the big takeaway for me in terms of what I learned spending time with you learning to write is I learned more about structure. As an actor, I tended to be very subjective. You work on your scene, your moment, you make things real in the subjective point of view of your character. And you're not really given the opportunity to stand back and look at the whole structure of a piece and get involved. It's not your movie, not my duck, not my bottle. You know, it's not your movie and that's not your job. But there are very few actors that actually think structurally. I've met one recently. I worked with one and it was fascinating. We were on a TV series together. And he actually just inherently had the ability to see structure. And he would take things we were doing in a season and say, what if we did this? What if we did that? What if we did this? And it would up the stakes mm -hmm. for the journey of the characters. In long form TV now, that is a joyous ride to go on. But most actors, I think your role, actually, your function is to think subjectively and actually sometimes come to the writer and the director and say, no, my character wouldn't do that. Yeah. That's not true. Yeah. I had to do it. I was on a little indie. I, in the end, I spoke out and said, this isn't true. What we're doing isn't real. And they were getting this young actress to do something. It just smelt of bad writing. Yeah. And the irony was the writer was there and he'd actually written it first time around beautifully. But he, he couldn't help himself. He just had to futz and mess with it. It was already good. Really? And he just felt like he had to be doing something and he actually destroyed his own scene. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I should probably do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> yeah, but, so. uh, you know, how do you actually know when your script is done? Right? Yeah. Is such a yeah. big right. and, and yeah. challenging question. So you yeah. don't overbake it. I don't actually know the answer to that, but I think a good example, I, I did season seven of Homeland and the writing on that show, superlative. They've fought it out in the writer's room. They've worked out what they need, what the wants are, what the points of view are. So when you actually hit it, it's not restrictive to you as a performer. It actually helps you. You're very clear. So I would occasionally think maybe we should say da-da-da instead of da-da-da. And they would normally come back with, no, no, they'd actually thought it through already. Yeah. So they knew when their writing was done. That's a really beautiful way of looking at it. And, and in a way, the same way you, you're, when you're playing with a performance, right? An early draft. And then there's this moment where you start to realize what it is. Yes. And you start to go, no, I know intuitively it has to happen here. Right. And I think, you know, with great writing, when you've actually got it in place, it's not rigid when you come to it each time. It is actually fresh. If you truly find it as an actor and performer with good actors and it's well written, you can do it a hundred times. Yeah. You don't get bored of it. Yes. Because it's always alive because it's true. It's real. It's accurate to that moment with those characters. I think it's interesting because it's something so many writers get sucked into this idea that we have to write the commercial thing or write the hooky thing. Right. That works really well if you already have a career, right? If yeah. you're a famous writer and you just made $100 million in your last movie, yeah. it's a lot easier to have a good idea and, yeah. and let that be attractive. But you know, in early phases of a career, you have to distinguish yourself 
from all that stuff that's like a great concept and okay execution. To get somebody to invest in you, it's like you have to give them that thing that is already complete so that they go, hey, this might be a hard project or this might be a new writer or there might not be another famous person attached right now, yes. but I see how this can work. Right. And this is so much better than anything else I'm reading. Right. Yeah. And I think that comes down to one of the things you spoke a lot about, finding your voice and being willing to commit to your voice. Of course. Uh, and if you have the courage to pursue that, I mean, you have to dig deep for that. Some people just have a voice and others of us have to actually fish around and fight and struggle and look and say, well, what are these themes that are coming out of me? I don't really understand them yet, but yeah. uh, then you have to carve them into something that translates and impacts people. But yeah. because it's in a sense, deeply personal, it's the story you want to tell, you need to tell. I think that does still have impact. It finds its way through a lot of generic stuff or a lot of people trying to write formulaic stuff or trying to fit into the existing structure of Hollywood. And I think the films that I admire and the films that seem to make it through, they have an individual voice. And yeah. That's what you're always listening for. Right? You know, a lot of people think that voice is talent, right? And then we yeah. get in that talent trap of, do I have talent? Do I have enough talent? Right. But it's almost like what you're talking about with acting. It's the truth, yes. right? It's actually being able to strip away all those layers of masks to just be like, this is actually the truth of this character. This is the true line. This is the true moment. Right. So I want to talk to you a little bit about Mandy. Yeah, sure. Talk about a film that's an unlikely movie, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if, you, if you haven't seen Mandy yet, Mandy breaks really almost every rule. It doesn't do any of the things that you would normally expect in, mm -hmm. in a film. Nick Cage is in a traditional relationship and it feels like we're going to watch a relationship movie about this couple that mm -hmm. lives in the woods. And yeah. then your character, Jeremiah, becomes obsessed with this woman and it looks like we're going to watch a relationship develop between them. And then it kind of shifts and becomes a revenge movie. Yeah. And it's all kind of happening on like a metaphorical spiritual plane where yeah. there's kind of no pretense that this is naturalism right. at all, that right. we are right. purely in the world of metaphor. You know, I think it's a great example of the kind of unlikely movie that when you craft something in the right way, suddenly Nick Cage is involved, suddenly Linus Roche is involved, suddenly yeah, yeah. all these great people yeah. want to be a part of it. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about how did you come to that project and what was compelling about it for you? Well, it's a funny story really because I was all set up to do a little indie film and all the money fell out of it. And then I got this phone call saying, there's interest in you for this script. Nick Cage is attached, Andrew Riseborough is attached. Do you want to have a look at it? I did a bit of a sort of actor's read. It was a bit like okay, I get it, what is this? And there was demons on motorbikes and crazy cults and the horns of Abraxas and chainsaw fights. And I was like, I don't know what this is. I had no frame of reference for it. I couldn't really relate to it. I had no connection to it. And I came out of the room and I said to Ros, my wife and writing partner, I said, I, I don't think I can do this. I, I don't understand it. And she said, well, at least explore it, you know, talk to the writer and director. Okay, good idea. If I'm going to do that, I better do some research. So I watched his previous movie, Beyond the Black Rainbow. And for fans of Panos Cosmatos, they'll they'll know that film. It's a cult film in its own right. It's almost like the precursor to Stranger Things. Very strange, very weird, quite dark. But he had the ability to hold you in his spell. And I thought there was this mastery in the filmmaking. And then I went back to the script. And I started reading it with that kind of lens of his having seen his movie. 
And I started to see he'd, in terms of the role he was asking me to look at, Jeremiah was like this full display of the male ego, the metaphor from soup to nuts, from the enlightened ego down to the most pathetic golem-like character. He created a masterful journey. So I thought, well, this is interesting. I'll have a chat with him. And as long as there isn't a sort of 20-year-old kid on the end, they're going, yeah, man, we're going to fuck it up. <laughs> I thought it'll be interesting. And what I met was this very large man with a long beard and this great sense of humor and very thoughtful, very considerate, like the opposite of what some of the images in this movie is. And we started talking and I started talking about what I was perceiving about Jeremiah and we just clicked. There was this connection. And I got off that call thinking, oh my God, I hope he offers me the role. You know, it wasn't a done deal. And he did. And it was a great journey to go on. I didn't realize the quality of the filmmaking till I got there and started filming it. And we're all in this strange red light. And it was very surreal to be in. But as a creative partner, he was wonderful because he allowed me to contribute too. I didn't need to too much because he was the auteur. It was his vision. But there were bits within the story that I felt, well, I actually understood something about this. And I would mention things to him and he allowed me to contribute to the writing of a few little key scenes. That made me feel even more engaged. And now I just think the man's a genius and, and I'm so proud of the film. And it's not my genre. Yeah. Fantasy, horror, revenge. I mean, that's not what I do. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I just find it a beautiful piece of cinema. I mean, it's interesting. It's not in your typical performance. It's just like Spinal Tap. All, our, all of our dials go to 11. Yeah, yeah. Right? I had to push an edge for it. Yeah. And it actually demanded, you know, I haven't been pushed like that as an actor for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it's a joy. You know, often you end up, you get a little typecast, you know, you play a lawyer. So they give you another lawyer and you've got more legalese to do. And you try to find the edge in everything you do. But occasionally a project comes along and you're given something and I have this experience as an actor going I know I can do this I just don't know how I'm going to get there and that was my constant experience making it I felt like I had to dig so deep inside of myself to make this personal and real and it would exhaust me I've never been exhausted by a role like that I had to dig really deep similar to their writer's journey right is yes. like sometimes we have this urge to write the movie that we can write we went through this developing Tayard where we got to push not to write the script we can write, to actually write the script that we can't write yet, yeah. but that we wish we could write. Yes. And I think it's interesting while we're on Mandy, because it's not a perfect film, right? It, the film is problematic in so many ways. And it's interesting yeah. because, you know, your first reaction to this was like, oh, I can't do this. Sometimes as writers, we have this urge to soften our rough edges, right? right? We're like, oh, well, let's see. The character doesn't go on a traditional journey. The point of view shifts. We are more in the world of metaphor than we're in the world of reality. And we yeah. might have the urge to be like, oh, okay, well, I have to make this naturalistic and yeah. I have to tone it down. And, and that's one way to handle that kind of metaphorical writing. And another way to handle it is what happens if I turn up the dial to 11? Yeah. What if I double down on the magic? Yeah. If I double down on the metaphor? Right. Right. What if the traditional storytelling actually wasn't important right. at all? Right. Some people are going to run from that, yeah. you know, but the right person is going to go, yeah. oh, this is the role that I could never play. Right. This is the role that nobody else could ever write. Yeah. Or a movie that would normally not get made. Panos said this beautiful thing when we were in Sundance. He was talking about the current era that we're in 
particularly mainstream cinema, he called it the tyranny of perfection. Everything is micromanaged within a millisecond of its life. Things that aren't perfect, there's a beauty in that. There's a rawness, there's a rough edge, and those that's what's real. And his movie, there's one scene where Nick Cage, after girlfriend Mandy is killed by Jeremiah, it's just Nick Cage in a bathroom for maybe two minutes responding. You don't see that in cinema. Never, never. No, and yeah. it's awesome. You laugh because it's yeah. unbearable and it's funny and then it's tragic and you go through Leaving Las Vegas and Raising Arizona and all of his <laughs> movies and it's genius to just let that happen. That takes guts. And why that happened is because Elijah Wood and Josh Waller and Daniel Noah at XYZ, they love these weird indie movies. They're, they're not what, horror fantasy movies. Their mandate is... They go to directors that they love and they say, what's the movie that you want to make that no one else will make, that everyone else is running away from? That's the one we want to make. Yeah. I love that about them. Yeah. And occasionally you're going to get a little diamond like Mandy's going to come out and, and really break through. I think that that's really beautiful. Yeah. And sometimes you think that everyone's looking for commercial and look, everyone likes to make money. Yeah. But the truth is there are so many different niches. I just met with a guy who's raised over $1.6 million on Kickstarter, awesome. which is incredible, right? Wow. And we're hoping to actually arrange for him to start teaching some classes here mm -hmm. because wouldn't that be nice for our students? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he said was really interesting was to succeed on Kickstarter, you don't look for the niche that's being served. You right. look for the people who wish there yeah. was a movie like this. They yeah. wish there was a series like this. Yes. And you go after that niche. Right. And, and another way of saying that is, what's the role I always wanted to play? Your film about Teilhard, right, yeah. is mm -hmm. the story that everybody else overlooked. Yeah, right. That you just needed to write. Yeah. So all movies have this, what I like to call friction points, right? Mm -hmm. And the friction point is why somebody's going to say no. And one of the hardest lessons to learn is when you feel that friction point, when someone starts to say no, yes. you have to ask yourself, would changing this friction point actually make the script better or would it actually take away what yeah. makes the script specific yeah. Yeah. and what's eventually going to yeah. make somebody have enough crazy passion that they have to do it, that they, right. that they can say no. That's right. Compromise is essential in certain areas, but it can be death to the inner voice yeah. and to the, the whole reason for telling the story. And the one thing I've taken out of Mandy, it was having a project that I now want to get made, having written it, seeing somebody stay true to their vision and hang in there gave me a lot of confidence yeah. that if you really have something to say and you really believe it, as you say, if it, it is speaking to something that hasn't been spoken to before, if you stick with it, you stand a very good chance of fulfilling it. But yeah. if you keep bending and twisting and fitting in, you'll end up with what was chicken soup is going to be just a whole load of noodles on the floor, you know. So you can't be arrogant about it. I mean, you've got to listen. You've got to respond. Yeah. But I love your analogy of a friction point because it, it is. And it could be creatively a good point. Maybe it's going to be something that will take it into being more marketable. So. Yeah. And, well, and that's really interesting with Mandy because if you get on the internet and you read the reviews, there are people who hate it, yeah. but there are also like mainstream people oh, yeah. who are flipping it. Rolling Stone has an incredible review of it. Yeah. New York Times, yeah. Roger Ebert. Yeah. Um, what I think is really incredible is this is a movie that was designed to be for a niche audience. This is, we're going to run right at every B fantasy sci-fi yeah. yeah. element that you've ever seen. We're going to run right 
towards that kind of 80s cultural reference yeah, and yeah. the self-awareness of that world. We're going to have a pace that's more like you've seen Uncle Boon Me who remembers his dreams. No. It's this little Thai horror uh-huh. movie, but it's built for a niche audience, but it actually ends up crossing over and you have major mainstream critics going like, Mm. Hey, you guys showed me something new. Actually, mm. I'm into this. Well, I mean, I, I, when he says built for a niche audience, I, I think there's truth to that. But I, I don't think Panos is thinking I'm speaking to my niche audience. He has a vision. He was actually yeah. dealing with the death of his parents. Yeah. These two movies are about the death of his parents. Yeah. On the Black Rainbow, he calls his inhale. Yeah. And if you look at the movie, it's very blue. It's quite cold. It's a an inhalation and Mandy is red and it's an exhalation and it's bloody and it's cathartic and it's released. Yeah. Um, that's what he was doing. Yes. I don't think he was saying, I've got a bunch of fantasy horror nerds that I'm going to entertain. And interestingly, when it screened in New York, I had a bunch of friends come who, you know, I knew this is not really their kind of film and they loved it. Yeah. And they started seeing things in it that I hadn't seen. They thought it was a blue wave movie. Yeah. Because Nick Cage is wearing 44 Obama Mm -hmm. going after the blonde-haired narcissist. I really like what you're saying because it reminds me how personal screenwriting is. Yes. Nobody outside of you and a few really brilliant people might go, oh, isn't that interesting? It's an inhale and an exhale. Right. Right? And it's a guy dealing with the loss of his parents through metaphor. But when you are clear, when you as a writer or you as an actor or you as a director, as you as an artist are like, yeah. this is what I need to make sense of here. The way you described your character, he is the embodiment of the male ego. The way that Panos described his process, right? Yeah. I'm going to write a movie that's the inhale and I'm going to write a movie that's the exhale. It's a, a much more interesting way of thinking about theme. Exactly. Right? But yeah. when you know what that thing that's guiding you is... Yeah then it becomes much easier to make those choices and to go, oh, no, this needs to be like this. Or, no, I don't care what you say. It has to be like this. Or, oh, actually, that's a good note. This is going to help serve that theme that I'm building. That's right. And I find it extraordinary when you have a writer-director that is that clear with their vision and yet able to collaborate. Yeah. Is not a dictator saying, da-da-da-da. He brought so much collaboration in. Yeah. He invited you to be part of it. He's not the most articulate man on the set in terms of telling everybody everything, but you felt everybody wanted to serve this vision. You had this inherent sense of somebody's got a vision and everyone's trying to meet it and was giving everything to that end. And that's beautiful in terms of the creative ensemble of filmmaking. Because in the end, as a writer, you're alone with your script and your pages, but in the end, you're going to be part of a big thing with lots of people involved. Yeah. It might start off as a fish and end up as a bicycle, but is it, it was it, you know, a bicycle in the beginning that you really wanted to see? You know, yeah. maybe it gets better because of the input. I've always had this experience, no matter how unlikely the project, Yeah, when you're doing the thing that you need to do, yeah. Suddenly these angels appear and help you. They d- that's right. And when it's you're amazing. doing the thing that you're not meant to do that you think is like the smart thing yeah. or the good for your career or whatever, yeah. it's like every obstacle in the world will appear. It's very true. I really liked what you said about the collaboration mm. because when you really know what you're building, it becomes so much easier to collaborate. 
And when you're insecure about what you're building, when you haven't actually done mm. the work, when you don't actually know, right. oh, it's a breathe in and a breathe out, right. then it becomes very hard to collaborate because right. the ideas can confuse you or feel like they're knocking you off course or make yeah. you wonder if, if you have what it takes. Right. I think as writers, we're actually collaborating with our characters. Uh -huh. We have this vision for what we want to make. And then our character shows up and we think they're going to say this and they say that. Yes. And it's yeah. almost exactly yeah. like working with an actor. We think the actor is going to say this, but then the actor goes, actually, I don't, that doesn't feel true to me. I yeah. think it's going to be that. This connects, it's a little tangential, but you taught this great lesson of, you know, be prepared to write badly. Good writers write badly more often. I think that basic tenet of do not inhibit yourself to be perfect before you've even let your voice out because you don't even know what is going to come out of you and what's needed to come out of you and therefore with your characters we tend to be always limiting in terms of wanting to get to the end result rather than actually going through the process of allowing stuff to be freed and released and it's very much the same with the craft of acting a lot of the time you're just expected to turn up and deliver and i've got very good at doing that so i can earn a living at it but it's not really the same as being allowed to find something co-create something build something and play with something and play on film i think is so important there's very little time for play yeah it's all about deliver, deliver. There's money, there's pressure, you've got to deliver. Whereas a lot of great stuff came out of the moment when you slightly got it wrong or things went slightly different in the scene and, and you did something that surprised yourself. And it wasn't from the known mind, it's coming from that deeper place. So as a writer, you're being pushed to always, it's a fascinating thing, isn't it? Because you're being pushed to always intuition, but you've got to give that form and structure. So it's that yin and yang, that balance between the two, which is really challenging. I think that's really apt. I remember many years ago, I, I studied with a Mike Daisy, who's a brilliant monologist. I was interested in working with him because what he does is so unique. He shows up, he, he's, a, he's a very large man, and he sits in a black shirt at a black desk, no sets, no props, no lighting cues. Right. He comes in, he just sits there, and he'll have five pages out of a yellow pad, which he never looks at, mm. but he sets the desk and every once in a while he flips the page mm. and he just tells you a story. But the stories he tells are so incredibly complicated right. and he'll weave all those stories together in ways that you're like, how did this man do it? I wanted to learn from him. So I, I took this, this class with him and, and he, one of the things he talked about was the idea that a great story needs to be broken in some way. Uh -huh. That if you are able to wrap it all up and tie it together with a bow and make it yeah. perfect where it doesn't have any flaws, what it really means is that you didn't wrestle with the issue fully <laughs> right? because there's nothing that we can fully understand. That's, so yeah. if it's not broken in some way, it means yeah. you didn't look at the other side of the coin. You didn't That's look right. at the counter argument. You That's didn't right. push yourself to that place where you yeah. weren't sure how you yeah. were going to pull it all together. That's right. And so what he does, he'll start in, in the way that Pano starts with a breath in or a breath out, or you'll start by going, mm. the character is the embodiment of the male ego. Yeah. He, what he does is he sells a title. Mm. He comes up with a title that he finds intriguing. Right. And he doesn't do any preparation until the day before his first monologue. Mm. He stays up all night. He makes a five-page outline, which is what's on those yellow pads, mm. and he never looks at them. Wow. What he's done is he gives himself what I call the me draft, right? Yeah. He gives himself this process to wrestle and look right. and explore. Right. He gives himself a general shape. 
So he has a sense of where he's going. And then what he depends on, and this is another really brilliant lesson from him, is he depends on truth. He says, if you just keep telling the truth, yes. eventually the yeah. stories are going to come together, yes. right? If you just keep pushing on the truth, right. even if you don't know how it's all going right. to work, right. eventually these stories are going to come together. Right. And when he talks about truth, he's talking about the emotional the truth. Emotional truth. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting yeah. when you think about what happens if you just follow that through line of the truth? What yes. happens if you just yeah. actually push yourself to tell the truth all the time? Right. How right. much easier structure becomes, how much easier yeah. taking notes becomes, how much easier right. it is to like know what to fight for or what not to fight but for. But also you end up with something, I think, which is what I believe Mandy is. Whether it's perfect or not, it is what it is. It is true to itself. I think of films as visions, yes. basically. They're like dreams and visions. And have you got the tenacity, the courage, the guts, the wherewithal to take your dream and go through the horrific process yeah. of getting everything you need to turn that into two hours of film. That's a big deal to do that. But in the end, they are visions that have been put up there for others to watch. Your dream is going to be seen. And if it's a true dream, who's to say, you know, whether it's on the moon and it's suddenly down in a cafe and an alien walks in and sits down and has, who cares if it's got a truth in terms of its integrity of the journey of your consciousness of the consciousness of the story it can't be argued with and that's what i love that's what i think is courageous writing acting filmmaking whether you like it or not you can't argue with it you know yeah. what i mean <laughs> I, I know i know exactly what you're saying and i really love that which brings me to tayard talk yeah. to me about this script this has been a passion yes. project for you and Roz. Yeah. talk to me about how you came to that story and what, what did that story mean to you well Roz and i were both very interested in the spiritual life and particularly I think we came across this character Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, a French Jesuit priest in the 20th century, he died in 1954 and because of his vision of the future and his ability to go beyond the Catholic Church and embrace science and evolution and his willingness to put these two worldviews together and synthesize them he paid a terrible price and he was exiled to China and silenced. And we thought, we live in a world where not only is there still this schism between these two worldviews, there's very little narrative for anything in between. We were fascinated by his life and his story and we thought it would be a great challenge to give him the platform, the stage that he never had in his lifetime. His yeah. books were published and they are actually quite challenging books to read, but he became a hero after his death, I suppose, in the literati world. But he's never really had the platform to speak to the common man. We thought, wouldn't it be great to give him that opportunity and have a dialectic with this theme? The catchphrase would be, we live in times that are deeply challenging right now, so deeply challenging that we don't even know what planet we're going to be in in the next 12 years with climate change. We're under the tyranny of Trump. We are seeing wars in Yemen and it is just almost unbearable to hold it all. And we can't. I defy anybody to really hold it all. But he provides a context, I suppose, or at least some space to say this world we're in is in process. And who's to say on which side the balance falls on that of pain and suffering or joy and creativity, how can we bear it all? How do we? And it provides at least some framework for that. Yeah. Now that sounds a little abstract, but I suppose that's the theme of the film without being Pollyanna-ish of saying, spirit first and we've synthesized it and we've got the answer. It's not the answer. It's saying, 
underneath all of this, we are in process. The world is moving and we do move through these turbulent times and find a way forward. And it's kind of on us to find our way. So it was a very challenging story to tell, as you know, Jake, because we sat in this room for many hours debating how to do it because an interesting life does not necessarily a movie make, you know, how to translate that into drama and create the necessary journey for him was deeply challenging. And we also had particular ideas of how we wanted to tell the story. And we wrestled a lot creatively, you, me and Raz, about what can work and what can't work. But in the end, I think that was the digging we were prepared to do. And we've come up with a script, which I think speaks for itself. So I'm very proud of what we did. Yeah. One of the things I think is interesting is the script almost captures the beginning of the culture wars, right? Uh It's the moment we have a, a Jesuit priest who is trying to find a synthesis between science and faith. Yes. And neither side wants to synthesize. No. So in that way, it kind of asks like a profound question that I think is really relevant today, which is, can we actually come together and realize we're trying to do the same thing? Yeah. Or is our fear of a belief that's different from ours eroding our belief? Yeah. Or is our fear of of having to deal with the truth complicating what we believe? Yeah. Is that going to get in the way of us actually finding a place of peace? That's right. And I, I think one of the things that's really interesting, you have this really beautiful like spiritual framework for the peace, but you also have an adventure story of this yeah. guy who is trying to find the proof that yes. man evolved from apes, right? right? And you're right. watching a priest whose church believes that even to think about evolution is sin. Yeah. You're finding a priest go on this journey of truth who does not want to let go of his church. That's right. Or of his view of God. That's right. And this is all happening against political and social upheavals. Two and world wars. Two world wars yeah. and wars in China yeah. and yeah. warlords. So what I think is really cool is we have this incredibly spiritual journey in this mm. action-filled, dramatic, mm-hmm. this mm. kind of marriage of a little beautiful character-driven story mm. with these kind of epic yeah. sequences in the film. That's true. And it just what it takes to do that is still amazes me. The amount of digging and rewriting and restructuring and understanding of narrative and structure. It was, it was a, a revelation to me. And hats off to Roz, my writing partner, because she took on the heavy work. Because in the end, we wrote different parts of the story, which is interesting being a writer team, that we took on these two different timelines. But in terms of bringing it all together, it needed one voice. And Roz was the one that took on the job of weaving the two timelines together and creating the one voice. And then I think as an actor, I was the one that came and refined a lot of the dialogue and the specificity of the moment. So it was a good collaboration, but that was not always easy. Writing with your life partner is also... (laughs) There's no break from that. Yes. But it was wonderful to do. She's on to her next project now. Teilhard, at this point, actually, um, we shared it with one of the producers of Mandy, this Belgian company, and they've offered to take it on. Oh, that's so exciting. It's got a funding base. It doesn't mean they provide all the funding, but they will match what comes in and they will provide the infrastructure to get the movie made. And yeah. They also put it within a reasonable budget, which is great because we did not write this beginning with, we're going to write a film that we know we can get made because we've tailored it to fit a budget. We wanted to write what we wanted to write. 
tell the story we needed to tell. Therefore, it takes place over a period of 50 years, uh, you know, turn of the century, and it's in Paris, it's in Rome, it's in China, and it's expensive. It's period and it's global. Yeah. So let's see, but we're on the next stage of our journey. And I, just to share with you, we're moving towards the fact that we might need to be the directors of this. Oh, wow. Because we can't quite see anybody being able to transmit it. And that's even if we had our dream list of all the great directors, we almost feel like we've written this to the point where we've done the short list. Yeah. So we might have to do a proof of concept, spend some money and shoot a sample do what Damien Chazelle did with Whiplash or something and build something that can show that we can do it and also show what the story is. But I think we're going down that road now. Well, I think one of the really wonderful things about working with you guys is the absolute refusal to compromise. (laughs) For me, it was an exciting challenge. But you guys are artists and you guys knew what you wanted this piece to be. And what was really fun is we were really able to push on each other and influence each other. That's great. And you weren't frightened to push, you know, which is your function. I call it creative tension. Yes. It's not conflict. It's creative tension. Sometimes you actually need that to get anywhere. I remember our draft one, this epic 180 page sprawling thing I would do and to us it all made sense. And I think if you were Darren Aronofsky, you'd get away with it because you're Darren Aronofsky. Yeah. But it did not translate and you were telling us that and we were like he doesn't get it he doesn't get it (laughs) but you were just pointing to the fact that if we're going to do this thing in different timelines we have to really work at how you have a integrity of continuity of each timeline to move between them and that took us i think six months to even start to get that properly for those of you who obviously most of you will not have read the script uh, (laughs) what they did structurally is so hard because they have two stories, one happening in 1954, and then there's another happening pre-World War II. Yeah. And then there are other flashbacks happening from Teilhard's childhood. So yeah. you actually have three different structural yeah. time periods exactly. that are all speaking to each other. And the easy way to tell this story, if you wanted to get rid of the friction points, <laughs> yeah. is you pick one. Yeah. Um, but thematically, it was so important to Linus and to Roz that this was part of what it was about. It was yeah. about the idea this is the same cycle and the same questions getting asked again and again and again and one again. One breath, one life, one lifetime, one moment. It was all one sort of thing, but you needed the spectrum of a whole globalization, even to the beginning of evolution of time and everything. But you needed to see a whole life. To have it all resolve in one day, one yeah. life, one day, one breath. Right. Yeah. It's that one thing that guides you that then allows you to make all those decisions yeah. and know when you have to fight and when you have to push. A lot of people think structure is some kind of formula, right? Exactly. Like what happens in act three? Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, what should happen in act four? But really what structure is, okay, I want to create this feeling of one breath, one day, one life. How? Yeah. How do I do it? Yeah. And All the structure is doing is serving that one simple idea. That's it. That's it. Beautiful. (laughs) I remember remember us going over that in that room next door. (laughs) You know, like you were saying, so what are your themes here? And we're like, well, it's obvious, isn't it? Look, it's this. But you just kept pushing for us to get clearer and clearer. And you don't know sometimes until you've actually done it until you've written it and you've exercised it and there's a lot of beautiful scenes and the moments you've written but when you actually do get clear about what your theme is and you do get clear about what you're doing you don't mind losing a scene yeah you don't care yeah 
the beautiful scene you wrote is no longer necessary. It's not a beautiful scene because it doesn't serve the whole. Yeah. And you're happy to let it go. So. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's so much what it's about, right? It's yeah. about as you start to really learn what it's about and what matters. Yeah. You go, this isn't important. Right. This I won't let go of. I don't care how hard it is. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Awesome. Well, this was a fabulous was interview. Great, Thank you so much for, <laughs> Thank you. for being here. Thank you. <laughs> All right. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. For a full transcript, to listen to over 100 podcasts in our library, or to learn more about our screenwriting classes in New York City and online or our ProTrack mentorship program, please visit our website, writeyourscreenplay.com.